we were just listening to Charlottesville 2017, the uh, infamous Unite the Right rally uh, that claimed the life of one person, Heather Heyer, and injured more than a dozen other people. Uh, I'm with Sammy Rangel, uh, Executive Director of Life After Hate, and welcome to the Life After Hate podcast. We, uh, we're, we're getting together on the eve of Unite the Right number two, which is going to take place in Washington, D.C. And Sammy and I want to talk about what's happened in the last year, um, what's happened not just with Life After Hate, what's been going on with the, with the country as a whole. Wow, Dimitri, we've seen a lot going on with the country as a whole on both sides of the coin. I think if nothing else, um, what we've seen kind of spike uh, are people willing to be verbal and vocal about their opinions, about their positions. Um, and unfortunately, we've been seeing a spike in the sharing of those positions regardless of content. So if they're bigoted or racist or separatist or just outright condemning and full of hatred and vile language towards a person or a group of people. But on the other side, we've also seen a nation rally, um, you know, 40,000 people showing up to a rally where 30 of these far right guys show up, right? People are also starting to realize that the civil rights movement cannot be launched from a couch behind a screen. It has to actually have people um, willing to show up and bear witness to these things. And we've been seeing a lot of that. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, dynamic that's, that sort of played out in the last year. On the one hand, you've got sort of the emergence of this so-called all right, alt right, and it, and it had been around for, for a little bit. And, and we, we got to see it on full public display. And then as the months progressed, we kept hearing these stories about the alt-right sort of getting dealt another blow here, another blow there. And what I mean by that is sort of PayPal cuts ties with them. And so they're losing their funding. They've got to retreat to Bitcoin. Um, they're losing their social media platforms. And yet, Sammy, we're seeing very public displays of racism from everyday Americans, right? Um, whether someone is being kicked out of a public pool or being followed home after uh, sort of an interaction, a traffic interaction out on the roads. How do you make sense of that exactly? If you're alive back in the 40s, 50s, or 60s, this would look very familiar. This isn't a new binary for our country. What I think has happened is since this... Uh, fairly new political climate has shown itself and and developed a narrative of its own it's kind of whether it was intended or not i think inspired or provoked people to feel as if uh political correctness is out the window all bets are off there's no accountability you know when someone says i could go out on the street and shoot somebody and i'd still win the election i i think it sends a message to people you know that hey we can do and say whatever we want and not have to worry about consequences um, behind that. However, on the other side of that, I think there are uh, ways for people, and, and we've seen it, we've seen communities, you know, um, as, as a community come out and say, we're not gonna have this here, and the next thing you know, a person loses his job, they lose their home, they're now they're homeless and on the road, and, and, and uh, in, in turn, fearing for their own lives and on the run, right? And so 
I think both sides have kind of said, you know, enough's enough and we're going to do something, except that only one of those sides is really fighting for rights for all people and is not necessarily based on uh, racial identity as a, as a superior factor, but equality for all people. That's, that's the major difference here. Do you think there's a danger? Do you think there's a danger in having these types of moments in history? Um, by, by, by that, I mean these very public moments of two oppositional sides standing off. Because sometimes I feel like the, the, bigger, the bigger concern in, in um, a big picture issues like policy um, uh, that, that's being set sort of on the highest levels of government are getting overlooked because maybe we're getting consumed by the, 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 the foot soldiers facing off Antifa on one side and, 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 and the far right on the other. Well, you know, let's, let's make sure we're not making a false equivalence here. Antifa is not by statistical standards any, anywhere in the ballpark of threatening uh, national security as we know that the far right is. It, it's, it's night and day. The, the, the numbers don't support that. You can go on a number of sites, including FBI sites, and that show in the last 10 years, 74% of all violent extremism committed by domestic groups have been from the far right. And yet only 2% um, of domestic terrorist attacks on U.S. soil have only been committed by people from the far left. Um, so it's a false equivalency. We've got to be careful of that. But we know where that narrative started and how it was put out. Secondly, a lot of the interviews that we've done and conversations we've had from members from the far right indicate that they see this as a restoration of a pre-existing binary that lent itself towards oppression, segregation, violence based on racial tensions, things of that nature. So it's, in, on one hand, uh, back in the 60s, it, it was a camera crew that could catch something like that. And that became kind of the way those things were captured if ever aired. But today with everyone having their mobile camera crew built into their iPhones or their Galaxy phones, it, it makes it seem as if these things are more common and more commonplace uh, where we know that while hatred is on the rise of expression, we do know that it's never really been dealt with to the point that it was pushed out of existence, right? And so for many of us, including myself, you know, at 17, you know, a number of years ago, I, I survived a race riot that was, that was, you know, white supremacists attacking minorities. I mean, and that was what, 30 years ago, maybe? And and here we are today still dealing with a very similar environment, similar tactic. But I think social media and cell phones make it uh, very apparent right in your face. You can't deny it. If nothing else came out of Charlottesville, it's moved the conversation from the coffee table to the community. That's a good point. And, and you know, I think, I think another sort of major change that we've experienced was perhaps people gained a new vocabulary. And by that, I mean, in the weeks and months following Charlottesville, we here at Life After Hate, we were, we were sort of inundated with calls from people, um, friends and family who were saying, I, I'm, I'm recognizing something in my brother, in my husband, in my boyfriend, in my girlfriend, that, that's looking familiar now. And, and it seems dark and they're, and they're asking for our help. So I, I think to a large degree, if there's something positive to come out of 
what happened uh, last year. It was an expansion of people's, you know, understanding of the issue. Well, you know, when you talk about vocabulary, understand that the federal government didn't even use the term violent extremism until 2013. Life After Hate was a part of a summit against violent extremism in 2011, and that's where Life After Hate understood that the work, the focus that we were looking at doing fell under the umbrella of violent extremism, and, and that was kind of the birth of Life After Hate, you know, where we said, well, here we are, a group of formers who could come together, use our experiences and our professional development for the good of, of, you know, national security, public safety, helping men and women pull out. We knew that because we had been redeemed, people could be redeemed. So this country was not familiar with that terminology, racism and, and bigotry and all of that stuff was kind of, you know, what, what people knew. But today people are starting to ask, well, what is the alt-right or what is violent extremism or how is that terrorism? And it's a whole new language. It's a whole new ball game when it comes to this stuff. And, and to be honest, no one in the US with the exception of maybe two or three people have been doing this work very long. So you know, anyone saying they've been doing this for 20, 30 years is, is, has not been doing this work for 20, 30 years. It was Life After Hate really brought this concept as a nonprofit um, to, the, to the US back then. And so anything that's coming out of that is pioneering efforts. It's uh, the creation of, you know, like, we created the very first flyer of what to do if hate visits your town because communities are feel like we don't know what to do when there's a rally or we don't know what to do when there's, um, you know, like a, a flyering from a, a white supremacy group or what to do when a, when a mosque or a cemetery is, is vandalized. And, you know, in so many ways, while vi we've focused on all sorts of other types of violence and we have all these other types of programs and, and prevention and interventions for gangs and reentry and you name it, we don't have anything in place for acts uh, of violence or terrorism or threats that focus on what happens when it's from a domestic terrorist group, you know, from the far right. And so we, we are more or less saying that the, the country has to be educated and brought up to speed on this new language that you're kind of talking about, this new, this new awareness, but not new concept of domestic terrorism from homegrown groups such as violent far-right groups. And, and I agree. And I think what I've learned in the last year in particular that sort of opened my eyes um, was, was sort of how widespread this is. And, and sort of when people are confronted in their communities with, with uh, this type of racism, um, there's, there's, a, there's a capacity to sort of become arrested, right? Uh, and, and that I mean like sort of um, incapacitated. You don't know what to do, right? You don't even know where to turn to. And, you know, you see, you see let's say, for example, you know, your, your neighborhood gets canvassed with KKK flyers. Um, it sort of strikes people almost, it almost seems unclear what the next steps are. And, and I don't know if that's going to change in the next, you know, few months and years. But right now, I think people are still sort of getting to, 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 to sort of make their way into a new normal, if, if that makes any sense. Well, you know, what civil rights did was push a lot of the outward violence underground, but it didn't extinguish it, right? And so 
what we're experiencing again is kind of that restoration of a pre-existing time period when this this stuff could happen and what what made it institutionalized was that that there was no accountability and there was no consequence for lynching people or an entire town putting on masks and dragging somebody out of a out of a jail and hanging them because of the color of their skin and you know just this bold reaction to to wanting to blame a minority or black man or whoever that was at the time for a crime that no one knew who had committed, right? And so what we're seeing now, I think, is kind of that coming back from underground. And a lot of the a lot of the sentiment that we're getting when we listen to the to the far right is that they feel that they've been denied the right to behave that way as a part of their grievance, right? Like, why why do I have to contain my rage, my violence, you know, and and why do I have to to, to show respect? And, and in many ways, um, they're complaining about losing the ability to be open about this and trying to reclaim the right to be open about this. Within the narrative, there's this idea that they've not been given a choice, right? That the world is changing around you, right? And it's sort of stoking more fear and more anger. And, and it's not surprising to see, to see it play out the way it is occasionally, um, at, least, at least that it's caught, that the, 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 inc- the incidents that we see caught on camera. Well, you know, what we're trying to understand, Dimitri, to your point, is what are the complaints and grievances that these groups have, right? And, to, and, and, and what your comment just made me think of is one of the grievances that I'm too young to be associated with slavery, with segregation, with World War II Germany. So why am I asked to take uh, a cultural and racial stock of my heritage if I had nothing to do with that, if my parents had nothing to do with that, if my grandparents had nothing to do with that, right? And and so in many ways, not only are they being forced, they're being lumped, right? And we call that collective shaming. And I think when we talk about issues like white privilege, white guilt, um, that the way we've been talking about that doesn't really encourage people to the table, but is can oftentimes be viewed and felt as a shaming conversation, um, making people, you know, guilty. A friend of mine said, um, you know, who's trying to draw attention to to racism in Chicago, he said, uh, all white people are innately racist, right? And when we talk about racism that way, that 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 makes people feel ugly and 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 gross and dirty, even if they're not. And some of their reactions could be to become defensive, which seems to kind of feed a narrative. But you know, I think we have to think about how we talk about these issues so that we're not involving ourselves in, in unintended uh, collective shaming, unintended um, grievances that really wasn't the point. We're just, we're basically saying, if you can help, please help. If you have something that, that gives you privilege or something that gives you access to resources that others don't have, can you lend that to us so that we can, you know, fight this battle? But when you try to cram that down somebody's throat, I think it adds to your to your sentiment that, you know, when we're trying to identify what's going on with these groups, that they're being forced into. And, you know, think about it. When um, affirmative action took place, you know, it was basically saying hiring practices need to be fair. You can't just hire a company full of whites without looking at minorities. Well, then in turn, uh, I think an unintended outcome of that was these groups saying, well, now I'm being prejudiced against uh, the color of my skin. I'm being denied 
jobs the same way you just said we were denying others you know and it's come this false equivalency however we understand where they're coming from like we we have to take time to listen to that so that we can try to come up with ways to have that conversation uh, in a meaningful way without just condemning their point of view because we think it's ludicrous or doesn't make sense or it doesn't hold weight I mean, look, at the end of the day, what, what you've been saying for a while now that really resonates with me is you could, you could attempt to understand someone's grievance, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean that you have to concede your position, and it certainly doesn't mean that you have to validate what their behavior, right, and justify it and say, okay, I understand why you did this. But there's a, there's a deeper level of compassion and understanding that we could get to, right? We can get to, and you get there even if you just get an inch, right? Even if you move just that much forward, there's a capacity to move miles, right? The only way to dismantle, the only way to dismantle hate is with compassion and empathy, not with more hate, not with overpowering or overwhelming. The only way to defeat your enemy is to understand your enemy. Uh, and the only way to overcome uh, these differences is by understanding what's at the root of these differences. But I think what our, our country is locked into right now that is pitting them against each other, uh, you know, to a point where no dialogue can occur are these, what I'm calling these myths of listening, what it means to listen, right? If, I, if I'm listening, then I'm giving up maybe some sort of commitment to my strong moral or value compass. If I'm listening to the other person, am I, am I conceding some valuable point or space? Um, if I'm listening to the other per person, am I somehow acknowledging that it's a valid argument that they're making? You know, like all these, you know, all of these myths around what listening means have kind of overshadowed what listening is meant to mean. Listening, you cannot reconcile anything without first having listening being a part of your dialogue and your communication. And right now, as you can see, our country is kind of um, stuck in these, you know, these bipolar positions and uh, everyone has a finger in their ear. You know, they're not trying to listen to each other. Well, these are issues that we are going to be exploring um, on this podcast, uh, the Life After Hate podcast, my name is Dimitri Kalanzis, and I'm with Sammy Rangel, Executive Director of Life After Hate, and we'll catch you guys next week. To subscribe, uh, just visit lifeafterhate.org.